Um, I, sh- I share that because uh, there are a few things that we're going to cover. There's two um, series that we're going to do starting at the beginning of this year, um, starting next Sunday. We're going to do two series that the Lord, I believe, has laid on my heart. And uh, one of those deals with uh, women in ministry. And uh, I've been studying this and, man, just so much uh, that the Lord is showing me uh, through His Word about uh, women in ministry. And some of you grew up in, in churches and cultures where uh, women weren't allowed to be in ministry. And uh, I will tell you, uh, we believe that women can be in ministry and can serve in any ministry position that God calls them to serve in, uh, equal with men. And uh, I will show you that from the Word uh, starting next week. We're going to study that for about four weeks. And uh, I believe that some things have been twisted and misinterpreted and uh, have really stifled what uh, the church could do. The second is in regards to the Holy Spirit. We're going to look specifically at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and uh, we're going to talk about those. And I believe those are two things uh, that any good enemy uh, would love to sabotage the weapons of the opposing force. And the enemy, I believe, has tried to take women out of the picture and tried to take the Holy Spirit out of the picture, Uh, and in many ways has been very successful in doing that. And has absolutely hindered the body of Christ from being all that it can be because of those two uh, misunderstandings. And so we're going to try to clear those up uh, over the next couple months together. But today, uh, we're going to wrap up our our 21-day time of consecration and prayer. And as we've been going through this, this 21 days of consecration and prayer is rooted in the 2 Chronicles 7.14 verse. And that verse says, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will restore their land. And so the three weeks of this process have been based on that scripture. And week one, we have focused heavily on humility, not meaning that now that we've been through week one, we don't need to humble ourselves anymore, but has focused on the aspect of humility. Week two focused on seeking his face, and week three has focused on turning from our wicked ways. Um, And our wicked ways don't have to be gross sin. They don't have to be murder, lust, pornography, hatred, gossip. Uh, It can be just something as, you know, I've broken covenant. My wicked way is I've been offering you just little bits when I'm supposed to be, I've been acting like a baby when I'm supposed to be a toddler. I've been acting like a toddler when I'm supposed to be a teenager. I've been acting like a teenager when I'm supposed to be an adult, spiritually. I mean, that can be a wicked way. And unfortunately, in the church world, many times, we humble ourselves before God, we pray, we seek his face, but we don't turn from our wicked ways. And then we get back into the exact same mess we were just in, and so we repeat the cycle. We humble ourselves, we pray, and we seek his face. And uh, somewhere along the line, about your teenage or young adult years, spiritually, the Lord's like, turn from your wicked ways. Okay? Do something different. You, you want a different result, but you're not going to get it if you keep doing the same pattern that you've done before. And uh, we're going to look at that. And a lot of times when we start to say things like this, guilt and condemnation come up. That's not from God. Sorrow comes from God, sorrow that leads to repentance. But this idea that I'm so overwhelmed and now I'm not living up to whatever standard and I'm more overwhelmed, that's from the enemy. And if that's the thought that's in your head, that's not God. And so we're going to hopefully try to correct that as we go through this. And we're going to look at ways to to repent and what the scripture says about it. 
But there's, here's 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, it conditionally says that God's going to hear and God's going to forgive and God's going to restore. So if we pray God hears and if we humble ourselves and seek his face, God forgives. But the restoration of our land, I believe, involves this idea of turning from our wicked ways. Okay, and that's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to talk about. And so we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about how it started. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve living in the Garden of Eden, the only two humans on the planet, created absolutely perfect uh, with no sin, no death, no hell, no nothing. Uh, In this garden, the serpent that was empowered by the enemy, by Satan, uh, was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. And now you may have heard that before, but God did not say you don't touch it. God said don't eat it. And Eve already is adding to what God said and said, well, you know, we're not supposed to even touch it. Uh, If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Is that a true statement? Kind of. Because you won't die immediately and your eyes definitely will be opened and you will be like God in the fact that you now know, experience good from evil in a new way. Huh. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover up themselves. Well, now that's not what they expected. I mean, the moment they ate that fruit, they didn't expect this. Because they had been deceived. See, sin is deceptive. It looks good. It promises a whole lot of stuff. It promises one thing, in fact, but it delivers another. It promises us freedom, but it delivers bondage. It promises us relief, but it delivers torment. It promises us the good life, but it only delivers death. And many times we don't recognize it until after we've partaken. And we're like, ah, that's not what I expected at all. Sin is deceptive. Then let's go to the first two brothers. In Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve have a son named Cain, the older, and then they have a second son named Abel. And uh, 2 Corinthians 11.3, talking about the deceptiveness of of sin, that's what Paul says there. In Genesis chapter 4, Adam has had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. They gave birth to Cain. With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of the best crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portion of the firstborn lambs from his flock. 
The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. Meaning, okay, at some point along this way, God has told them what's appropriate to sacrifice and what's not appropriate. And Cain, that offering is not the type of offering that I want. I want the lamb. I want blood sacrifice. That's what is right. But God, I'm, I'm not willing to lay down my life for you, but hey, I'll write a check. God, I'm not willing to lay down my produce. Are you seeing this? I mean, it's easy for us to say, well, we're not offering lambs or vegetables, so what's the difference? God's saying, I want you to die. I want you to give me everything. Give me your entire life. And we're week after week like, Lord, uh, well, today I'm going to give you this. And God's like, that's your produce. I don't want your produce. I want your life. From the get-go, this is what God says. But sin is deceptive. And if we give God our life, Man, that, that's going to cost us too much. And just like Eve, we, we can't figure out, you know, why do we feel so much shame? Why do we feel so much guilt? Why do we feel so much uh, disgruntledness or distraction? I mean, we don't have peace. We don't have, because we're clinging to stuff. We're trying to offer God produce, and he's saying, life, I want your life. But if you refuse to do what is right, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door eager to control you. In the, the King James Version, it says sin has a desire for you. It desires you. And the thing about sin is it's not only deceptive, but it's destructive. Because the rest of the story is one day Cain suggests to his brother, let's go out into the fields. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Do you think that Cain ever imagined that that's where that would go? I mean, after all, the problem isn't his brother's sacrifice. The problem is his own heart. But if I kill my brother, that's somehow going to take care of it. That's the deceptiveness of sin. And afterward, the Lord comes to him and says, where's your brother? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, Listen to something. Later on, we're going to maybe mention this, but blood cries out to the Lord from the ground. Okay? You're cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed up your brother's love. No longer will the ground yield any good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you'll be a homeless wanderer on the earth. That's a big deal because Cain's a farmer. And God's like, I'm going to take away your ability to produce in your own strength completely and he's like dude this is too much for me to bear you think that Cain thought that that was how that was going to go for him if I kill my brother I'm going to become a restless wanderer no he thought that that would ease his pain it only multiplied his pain why why did it multiply his pain I mean he could have been a shepherd he could have been something else why because Cain didn't want to change his heart he still wanted to offer God produce I still want to offer God the fruit of the land and God says, well, here's the thing. I'm going to take that away from you now. You don't even have that ability. I just wonder if Cain would have repented in that moment and said, God, I, I've sinned against you. I've sinned thinking that it was my brother when all along it was my heart. 
See, I see the hand of God in this saying, okay, if you won't recognize that it's not your brother, it's you that I want to deal with, then I'm going to remove the ability to produce in your own strength, hoping that you will come to your senses and repent still. No record that Cain ever did that. Genesis 4, 7, we just read this, but if you refuse to do what is right, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. Peter says it in the New Testament, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. All the way back in Genesis, God teaches us that we have got to master sin. And in our own strength, we can't master sin. We need his help. And Jesus has done everything to provide us the way to master sin. But many of us now use the cross as a cover-up and think, well, I don't really have to worry about sin or focus on sin. And so we allow wicked ways to remain in our lives. We don't turn from them. We, we babysit them. We, we allow them into our heart and life. And God allows some things to stay in our lives immaturely when we first come to Christ. But as he wants us to grow up in our salvation, we've got to learn to turn little by little from all of our wicked ways. I mean, at salvation, we like to tell everybody everything they need to do from this moment on. That's called legalism, remember? We did that back in the, well, you did that. I wasn't born until 1975. So you guys did that back in 1950 and 60 when we had this whole list of stuff that everyone from the moment they got saved needed to do to clean up their lives. We still do that today. I'm just joking. It's not just you. Um, For those of you born before then, we still do that today. But God doesn't work that way. God cleans us up and he keeps us from turning from our wicked ways little by little. Because here's the thing. When we accept Christ, we are positionally right before God completely and totally. In other words, it's as if we've never sinned. Even though we're still immature and and we're still making mistakes and we're still sinning. And we are learning to confess those sins, repent of those sins, and turn from them little by little by little. I mean, if we are still trying to turn from something that, we, that God already dealt with way, 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 way back at the beginning. And we like to excuse that and think, well, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Can I tell you why it's a big deal? Because sin is destructive and sin is deceptive. And sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go. And it will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. And a loving God will not allow us to keep those things in our lives, watching it destroy us. And so he'll come and make us uncomfortable. He'll come and kind of twist things into our, 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 our hearts and make our hearts hurt so that we repent of them. Not because he wants to take, but because he's, he's seen where that path ends. And it's not gonna be good. But I promise you right now, the deceptiveness and the destructiveness of sin leads us to believe that it's not a big deal. It's really not gonna cost that much. I mean, if I don't really lay everything down before the Lord, that's not a big deal. I mean, there's the grace, there's the cross, there's all these things. Can I tell you something? We're fooling ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves with the deceptive nature of sin. Get it out of our lives. The spiral continues in Genesis chapter 6. Oh, I forgot that one too. Romans chapter 6. I should look at my notes more. Um, Don't let sin control the way you live. Paul says it. Don't let sin control the way you live. Don't let any part of your body be an instrument of evil to serve sin. In Genesis chapter six, the Lord looks at the wickedness of the earth and he knows that everything that they imagine is consistently and totally evil. 
And so he destroys the earth with a flood, but he protects Noah and his family and then repopulates the earth from them. But Jeremiah chapter 17 tells us the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and it's desperately wicked. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 15, it's out of the heart that comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. All of these things, this is the picture of our hearts. God knows that these things cannot be just coddled in our hearts and we have got to deal violently with those things, removing them from our lives as he reveals them and makes them known to us. God doesn't reveal it to us just so that we can feel sorry and cry. He reveals it so we can come into agreement in our minds that that thing is wrong, that thing will destroy me if I leave it here and I will not leave it here. And so I am going now to make step, take steps. The Holy Spirit's going to show me and direct me how to cut that thing off. But as it is, we don't want to serve God that way. We're just content to come to church one hour or two hours a week and uh, just serve God a little bit. I'm, just con- I'm content to give God a token nugget and maybe read a couple scriptures a day. I mean, I'm not content. I, I'm, I don't need to lay my whole life down. I mean, after all, the, Jesus already did that for me. And we wonder why our lives are being destroyed by the enemy. Are you here? I know you're not going to say amen a lot today because it's kind of a heavy word. Um, But Jesus said it this way. Remember when he talked about the, the demon spirit that gets cast out of the person and the house is swept and put in order? But because the house is unoccupied, he gets seven friends and comes back and the, the case is worse than it was before. For many of us, we come to Jesus and he sweeps and puts in order, but we haven't turned from our wicked ways and he doesn't occupy the house in essence. And so we wonder why our condition is I mean, some of us are more miserable serving Christ than we were before. Seriously, we are. Because now we're, we feel guilty all the time. And the bottom line is God's just saying, let go of it. Just start admitting it to me and let me come and show you how we're going to cut this out of your life. And it's a process. It takes time. I mean, sometimes God takes the desire, boom, and it's gone and it's over. But sometimes we need to walk with someone. Sometimes we need to confess our sins one to another and have someone walk with us through the process of getting that thing out of our lives. I don't want to tell anyone else my sin. And we wonder why we can't get it out. Because we won't bring it into the light. And God says, you can't get rid of that one on your own. You need to have someone walk with you through that thing. And he's so faithful to us all the time. I mean, don't get me wrong. God's not saying today's your last chance. I mean, he... Maybe he is to somebody, but he's like, I'm going to be faithful to you to the end, but I promise you, if you don't heed my words, you're going to struggle. And God tells us all this about sin because he created us and he knows us. He understands how things work and we don't. I mean, I want you to think of it this way. Apple products like this iPad and iPhone have an, what is called an operating system, and Apple comes out with a new operating system just about every other week now and you need to update your phone and then you need to update all your apps and you need to update everything to go with it. And for a while, I just never updated because I'm like, I don't want to update things and mess everything up. And, and, then you just, and then there's glitches and I'll wait for you guys to get all the glitches worked out and then I'll update later. And, uh, but t- teenagers are like, hey, have you updated yet? And they, like, they count down the seconds until it's about to be released and then they're like, boom, update. Um, because they would just want the newest and best thing, and nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing, I, I, I got sucked into that world, and so I update all the time now, right away. And uh, iOS 8 came out back in September, maybe, or October, or August, and I updated right away. And uh, as I was updating, there was this new thing called iCloud Drive, iCloud Drive. 
And iCloud Drive said all of my documents and all of my stuff is going to sync. Means it's going to be instantly available on my phone, my iPad, my computer. And I'm like, dude, this is from heaven. I'm like, this is great. I, I am doing this. And a warning popped up and said, uh, for Mac users, for computer, you don't update to iCloud Drive. If you do, uh, your, your documents won't be able to sync unless you have um, uh, Yosemite operating system on your, your Mac. And I'm like, oh, no big deal. I'll, I'll download Yosemite. <laughs> Click, choose, yes. And uh, I, I started working, and I sometimes work on my iPad and somehow on my computer, and I couldn't get my, my documents to sync right. And I would worked on a sermon on my iPad, and I'm like, it won't open up on my computer. I don't understand. So I called Dave Boschpies, our district youth director, who's smarter than me uh, about computer stuff. And I'm like, dude, I can't get my stuff to open. He said, did you update to iOS 8? I said, yeah. He said, did you read the warning? <laughs> I said, yeah, I read the warning. Is there something I'm missing? He's like, well the new Yosemite doesn't come out for like five more weeks. I'm like, what am I going to do? My documents are in like limbo. Like they're in document purgatory, if you will. How do I pray them out and bring them to myself? And uh, luckily there was a way to go online on my computer and do it that way. But for five weeks, I really struggled being inconvenienced. I mean, not a third world problem at all, but I was inconvenienced by that problem. All because I didn't heed the warning. And that's a light and a, a funny way to, to illustrate it, but sin carries that same warning. And God has like blasted these warnings all up on the screen, and we're like, yeah, I've heard that before, click. And we click out of it thinking, yeah, I know that, I've heard that, and we wonder why our lives are being so in turmoil, because we, we won't heed the manufacturer's instructions. And we're deceived thinking, but iCloud Drive looks so good. That thing looks so good. And the moment Eve ate it, she realized he was right all along. And the problem is, until we surrender everything completely like that, we don't recognize God was right all along. And the enemy keeps twisting it and lying to us all the time. This idea of repentance, this word repentance, in our prayer guides, uh, Rhonda defines it this way as we, in kind of the, the, the pages preparing us for this week. Repentance is a free decision made possible by God's enabling grace to confess and turn from sin as we hear and believe the gospel. The definition of saving faith as mere trust in Jesus as Savior is wholly inadequate in the light of God's demand for repentance. Defining saving faith without including a radical break with sin dangerously distorts the biblical view of repentance. The repentance that God's grace makes possible through the cross involves a grief, a genuine regret for sin, and a decisive turning away from sin. Biblical repentance honestly confesses sin, renounces and turns from sin, and turns to God through the Lord Jesus. Saving faith is a repentant faith. What repentance is, literally, is telling our minds something is true that our minds don't already believe. Now, you may have been raised in church, and so you may think, well, my mind already believes that. But our mind doesn't, already, doesn't really believe it until it changes the way we live. See, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And see, as our minds literally start believing that sin is what it is, and that 
just allowing any portion of it into my life leads to destruction and death and I want no part of it, our lives won't change. Until we fully begin to grasp the deceptiveness and the destructive nature of sin. And here's the thing, we're so good at seeing it in other people. Not so good at seeing it in ourselves. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. But if we don't quiet ourselves and listen to his voice, we can go through life thinking we have got all of it covered. If we don't take time to just say, Holy Spirit, just show me, what, what am I doing? As we read the word, as I read the word today, just make, help it cut away at more of the gunk in my life today. Help it reveal more of my heart because the heart is deceptive. My heart is so deceptive that I am sitting here today, Lord, thinking that I'm, I'm done, I'm good. I, I've got it covered. Or I'm just thinking in generals, thinking, okay, I know there's things to work on, but God, I need you to be specific. Generals aren't gonna cut it because if I just generally say, Lord, I know the thoughts and intents of my heart are wicked, and so what are they? What are the wicked thoughts of my heart? God, the, the thoughts that I, I have thought this week about my spouse and the, things, the hurts that I've rehearsed in my mind are wicked and they are destroying me. That's the difference between specific because now I know what to do. Now I know what thoughts to take captive. Now I know what things to change. As long as we just generally repent of our wickedness, nothing changes. And the Lord comes and he gets specific in our lives, not so that we feel terrible, but so that we know what to cut off out of our lives. Does that make sense? Repentance doesn't have to be sad. It can be sad. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that the letter he sent to the, the church pointing out some of their mistakes uh, made them a little bit sorrowful. It caused them pain, but that repentance led to a change. That sorrow led to repentance, and that repentance led to change of life. Now, if our sorrow is a type of sorrow where we can't shake the feeling of guilt, that's a worldly sorrow that leads to death and destruction. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance. When God is the one making me sorry for my sin or pointing out my sin to me, then it leads me to, to agree with him and say, God, you are absolutely right. Man, this is ridiculous. It is wicked. It needs to get cut out of my life. Forgive me. Cleanse me of this. Covered, done, no need to feel guilty now, and show me what needs to change. And so we are now going to develop a plan to get that out of my life because that thing will destroy me if I don't get it out of my life. So thank you, God, for pointing it out, showing me how to get it out of my life. And sometimes we weep when we do that, and sometimes we're excited when we do that. It doesn't matter as long as we do that. Now, here's the thing. If you confess it, and then you just walk around for a week, man, I'm just such a wretch. That's worldly sorrow. That's the enemy pointing out that sin to you. Do you see the difference? One leads us to repentance. One leads us to condemnation and guilt. It's destructive. Either way, we admit it, and we take the steps. The problem is we continue in sin, because we don't want to, we don't, we haven't fully agreed that it's destructive. I mean, yeah, it's bad I got caught. It's, it's bad it's keeping me out of he heaven. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad it crucified Jesus. No, it's bad it's deceptive. And it will bring you to a place where you no longer recognize it or hear the Lord. It will bring you to a place where it will destroy you and destroy people around you. And God isn't saying that in an angry tone. He's saying that in a pleading tone. I know where this is headed. Hear me and repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Don't coddle it anymore. Hebrews even tells us if we deliberately continue to sin, 
after we've received this knowledge, there's no more sacrifice that will cover that sin because we will go down a path where our conscience will become so seared we will no longer hear. Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter five. If your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Again, Jesus is not implying that his, his blood is not sufficient to, to cover us in a way that one mistake and we're, just, we're cast into hell. I mean, that's what legalism taught. Legalism was this whole process of, I know Jesus paid for my sin, but he's just waiting for me to do something wrong and then I'm gonna be cast into hell. I mean, if Jesus comes back and I'm watching a bad movie, then I, I ain't going. As if the blood of Christ isn't sufficient enough to cover our lives. Now, if Jesus comes back and we're watching a bad movie that we, the Lord has said over and over and over and over and over and over, get that thing out, I don't know about that one, okay? Because we're living in willful disobedience to God. And we have not yet come to the fact that God said, get this thing out of my life, and it's still in my life. I don't believe this is destructive. I don't believe this is as bad as God says it is. I, this looks okay to me, and so I'm gonna leave this in my life because I mean, I know that when I was in the presence of the Lord at that, that service, that, uh, that was probably just emotionalism. Don't bank on it. You were probably just a little more sensitive to the Spirit than your rationalizing mind is right now. If God spoke about it back here, He hasn't changed His mind and said, hey, allow that back into your life now. You've grown enough where that sin is not as destructive for you as it used to be. See how that rationalization does not make sense? Get that thing out of your life and leave it out of your life. Make the serious steps to get it out of your life. Cut it off. Get violent with it. How many of you remember the story a few months back of the, the hiker that got, got his arm pinned under a boulder and stayed there for a couple days and knew he was not going to be rescued? And so he took, I believe it was his own pocket knife and literally cut his own arm off and then walked out of that ravine and walked himself to safety because he knew that was his only chance. I mean, it's either lay there and die or cut my arm off and, and do something about it. You understand what, what he did? He did it because he knew this isn't gonna work. I gotta go. I mean, ultimately, he didn't wanna lose his arm. I mean, ultimately, sin is, has a pleasure. It has, it has something that it offers our flesh. And so sometimes we just, I wanna keep it. I, I really don't wanna cut that off. And you know what? We haven't come in our mind to the point where we recognize that thing is going to kill me. It took him a couple days to realize uh, nobody's coming for me. I gotta cut my arm off and get out of here. And some of us today, I hope the light bulb comes on in our hearts and minds and we're like, that thing is gonna destroy me if I don't get it out. Because it has a desire for me. And God has a desire for me and he's saying, get that thing out. And I, I trust his desire a whole lot more than my own or the enemy's. We were gonna talk about the, the, the roots of sin, but we're not gonna take time to talk through those. Those are in your prayer guide. Um, she basically walks us through the three basic types of sin and being idolatry, immorality, and then violence and bloodshed and how all of them um, 
almost all sins come from those three root sins. And she, she's trying to help us get specific, using the scripture, showing us what idolatry is, because we're all like, oh, we don't have idols. But in the New Testament, the Bible says that greed is idolatry. And so if, if you have a greed, if you want more stuff or someone else gets something and you don't have it and you're like, uh, that's idolatry, okay? And so she is trying to help us get more specific with sin by using the word to present it to us in that light. And so I want to go to the one last scripture. Can you pull up the last scripture on that page from Isaiah chapter um, 6 and Daniel chapter 9? Um, so read through those three things, but I want to show you these two. When Isaiah begins to repent, um, he says this in Isaiah chapter six, it's all over, I'm doomed, I'm a sinful man, I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. A lot of times when we wanna repent corporately, we repent in generalities and we repent for like everybody. Um, We need to make that personal. Um, Let's not repent for our nation, let's repent for ourselves, okay? Um, Sin is rampant in our nation because sin is rampant in me. Okay, let's take ownership in that. This world, this country is in the condition that it's in because sin is rampant, but sin has been rampant in me and that's the problem. It shouldn't have been. It, it, it has been way too rampant in my life and I'm supposed to be the salt of the earth. I'm supposed to be the one doing this. And so make sure when we repent, we repent that way. And even look at Daniel, righteous Daniel who fasted all the time, prayed all the time and the Lord spoke through him all the time. Uh, When he is offering repentance, we have sinned. We have rebelled. We have done this. We've refused to listen. I don't picture Daniel as one refusing to listen. I mean, I look at Daniel and think, Daniel, what do you mean we? If anybody got it right, you were getting it right. You should have said thee, they, them. They did this. They did that. But Daniel understands something. He's just as wicked as everyone else in that nation. I repent. We repent. We have done this. We have done this. I repent. I am repenting today and that's what Daniel says before that and Daniel says again after that and so as we take time and that's how we're going to end this service we're going to put some music on in just a moment you've got a few minutes I want to encourage you to sit in the, the, the presence of the Lord as much as you can if you've got your prayer guide with you open that back up go through today's devotional look through some of those scriptures look through some of the scriptures I've shared with you today begin to ask the Holy Spirit to show you what needs to be done what do we need to turn from today And so, Father, that's our prayer today. I thank you that you love us enough, God, that you continue to repeat these warnings. God, your word says that your spirit won't always strive with us, that there does come a point where our hearts can become so hardened that we just no longer hear your voice. There can come a place, a point in our lives where uh, we, we just reject your voice so much. God, we don't want to come to that place. And so today... We want to turn from our wicked ways. Holy Spirit, I want to turn from my wicked ways. And I need you, through your word, to show me those things. My heart is deceitful. The sin is deceitful. And I need the the truth of your word to shine a light today. I need you to show me the areas that need to be cut off, some things that need need me to start getting more violent with. I can't coddle those wrong thoughts. I can't coddle those wrong behaviors and practices anymore. Things have have got to change and I, I need you to direct my steps. I need you to show me that path. I want to come into agreement with your word today that that calls sin, sin. And I want to walk in truth from this moment on. 
And so, Holy Spirit, as we take these moments and we just wait before you, I pray that you would speak to each of us. That you would make your presence known and felt. God, that you would bring a sorrow over our sin that leads us to repentance. And that you would help us to reject the worldly sorrow that wants to just condemn us and wants to maybe, uh, God, even cause us to, to become paralyzed and not able to deal with the things that you want us to deal with. And so I pray for a true repentance to fall in our hearts today and throughout this week as we just continue to wait before you and as we continue to turn from our wicked ways. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay as long in this atmosphere as you'd like. Whenever you need to leave, please just leave quietly. Uh, let this be kind of a, an atmosphere of prayer and just seeking the Lord for these few moments for those uh, that want to remain even a little bit longer.